A2s or 3s. Um, we're back with part two of crazy conspiracy theories about Jesus. Um, let's get started with that intro, Jared. Two or three gathered. As a series of conversations with Christian brothers and sisters, considering their efforts and contributions to the kingdom vocationally, their stories and testimony of God's sovereignty and grace, and an opportunity to tackle the relevant issues the church faces in the 21st century. In this, we seek to equip the saints by networking within the body, starting the conversation around often taboo subjects and seeking to develop unity across Christian denominations and traditions by opening up uh, discussion on worthy and necessary topics. We want to help educate the wider body of Christ by asking experts and people of wisdom across multiple fields the hot-button questions and sophisticated questions that we believe there are answers for in Christchurch, but that there is not necessarily always access to. We want to further the growth of knowledge and wisdom in ourselves, to worship God with our minds and fellowship with all of you as we collectively seek to discern what God-glorifying discipleship looks like for us in our respective vocations and in our spheres of influence. It is our heart and hope that Christ himself would be in our midst as we converse about things we believe he himself is very interested in. Welcome, twos or threes. Thank you for gathering with us. What's your latest, bro? You know, uh, you... Uh, loving your job right now, not so much loving your job. How's Joanna and Lottie? Oh, that's, a, that's a neutral subject. Joanna, Joanna and Lottie are lovely. Um, this news, show the tea. <laughs> before, before we started the, um, for those of you on video, you'll see, but um, before we started the cast, I said to Jared, I said, oh, we have some news. And I held up a um, rapid antigen COVID test. Um, because in my job, we take these twice weekly because um, uh, we are constantly going into the office. Our operation is a 24-7 operation in our team. But anyway. Which, to clarify, um, yeah. is a COVID test. It's not an indication of Caleb and Joanna's love life. <laughs> yeah, so the joke was uh, it, it, it looked like a... <laughs> <laughs> it looked like um a pregnancy test and jared really got excited and then was quite uh quite miffed with me when he found out that it was a rat test and he was probably then quite upset that i didn't have covid um, yeah i just want an excuse to treat you like a leper basically you know <laughs> modern 21st yeah. century version of this well <laughs> I'm vaccinated, so unfortunately, you can't treat me as a lower class. Well, um, you're vaccinated, so unfortunately, you can still catch it. In fact, you're probably more susceptible to it than not. Yeah, and <laughs> vaccinated make up over 80% of North, <laughs> Northland and Auckland Hospital COVID patients. <clears throat> um <laughs> Get your booster, guys. It's the best way to fight Omicron. Sorry, I'm ruining your like deadpan take right now. <laughs> Listen, we should promise right now to not talk about COVID. We've already recorded the COVID cast. We've talked about COVID. 
Or, you know, we could end up yeah. having a whole conversation around that for the next hour. Um, Conspiracy theories about COVID cast? Oh, why not? Well, I mean, a lot of what I think are conspiracy theories or labelled as conspiracy stuff. Bro, you gave such a heartfelt like response on the conspiracy theories cast. Seven and eight for those who are interested. Just plug in that for a second. Um, you, like about how like no, that was during a dark phase of my life. I'm not going back down that road. <laughs> no, I I still hold to some. And hey, uh, maybe this is another dark phase, which is why I'm getting more into them again. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe 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 I need to go back on fluoxetine. Uh, I don't know. Mm. We are obviously wanting to close off um, our, on a part two, talking about theories, uh, crazy theories regarding Jesus. And so mm. last time we obviously talked about um, Jesus as ancient gods and how people have tried to kind of conflate uh, the similarities between, say, Mithra and Dionysus and Horus to mention mm. some with the Jesus narrative. Um, we talked about yeah. as Jesus revealed in modern-day cult leaders, Jesus as spiritual leaders throughout the ages, kind of a similar idea there, as mm. well as um, Jesus and Mary Magdalene and kind of like how the Da Vinci Code has more recently popularized that or the Gnostic Gospels. Well, first theory we're going to talk about today um, was an idea that actually uh, the church has dismissed Jesus's theories on reincarnation as it mm. doesn't align with their beliefs. Um, have you, are you familiar with this one, my bro? Like, uh, Yes. Um, now there is a Presbyterian man who in the 70s or 80s became very popular with this idea um, and was considered by most to be, and most Presbyterians, of course, uh, to be quite um, off kilter and just not even Christian because he was, you know, he believed in Jesus, but that the, um, it, it wasn't quite reincarnation, but it was just more, that it was a spiritual kind of resurrection that more resembled reincarnation. But I can't remember the name of the guy, so. But yeah. Um, Do you feel like this uh, comes from like a, oh, what's the name? Like kind of a, let's plug in for a second, sorry. Kind of a desire to syncretize and kind of water down and dilute the differences between different faiths again. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think mm. there, there's definitely been a push, even before this guy that I'm thinking of. Um, but I think there's been a push from a lot of people within and out of the, the Christian movement to force that pluralism and syncretism into um, many aspects of life. Uh, and it's the whole intolerant tolerance, you know, you know, trying to make, you know, other people believe that, you know, everything works together. It's the, the kind of Hare Krishna approach, you know, where any Christian who's spoken to a Hare Krishna on the street who's you know proselytizing okay. mm. um you know that they'll often say no no i believe in jesus too i believe in i believe in jesus and um 
I love Jesus. And I, I often say what I do try to, um, it's maybe not the most grace-filled approach, but I, I try to be as graceful as possible. But, um, you know, I, I point out, look, Jesus said, I am the one way, you know, I am the only, the, the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. And I point to several verses of the Bible that are make quite exclusive um, truth claims and then point out that while their belief system says that others are compatible, mine does not. And I have noticed that does tend to spark a little bit of um, frustration with Hare Krishnism that may, that may be due to a variety of things, but then they become more angry because they're not supposed to get angry and frustrated as part of their, 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 um, their approach to life in general. They're supposed to be very chilled out, very, you know, centered and balanced. Um, and I think, honestly, uh, there, there will be some psychological reasons to that. There'll be some social things in terms of them thinking I'm intolerant and I'm, I'm stubborn and could be some of that but ultimately i do think there is a mm. spiritual side of that that i was gonna, I was, I was gonna say i mean they're not wrong but <laughs> <laughs> um and i totally deflated your excellent point yeah there's a spiritual yeah. there's a spiritual yeah, and, and I, I yeah i do believe there is a spiritual side of that that is yeah. you know within them that gets angry and mm-hmm. the fact that something is pointing out that Jesus is the way. Um, and I believe that more than most other um, religions who tend to go out on the street and proselytize, the Hare Krishnas uh, probably have a very big spiritual aspect to what they do. They often put themselves in trances by, you know, dancing down the street, chanting Hare Hare Krishna, you know, mm. um, with or without a spiritual aspect of that it is, it is well established psychologically that that will um elevate you know one's brain chemistry and dopamine into a state of almost trance or definitely trance so yeah wow well, yeah that's, that's so. the cast in itself eh? the psychosomatic dimension of faith um yeah yeah so I mean, I, I have some points I can make here uh, yeah, you know, about my, my own thoughts here. But I want to ask your thoughts here for a second, like uh, the devil's advocate mm-hmm. for a second, because I've, I've seen some passages that advance this idea of reincarnation and like, you know, the idea that, you know, somehow the church is masquerading, like it's actually a misrepresentation of the centuries, right? Um, like I, I have here, I wrote down, this as a note, like this idea that I could kind of see this criticism given the progressive cultural misrepresentation of faith uh, leading up to the Reformation. You know, you, you have, by the time we've actually got from the apostolic church and the church fathers by succession and mm-hmm. after the Council of Nicaea, we have a very bastardized version of actually what faith is, you know, and the likes of indulgences and purgatory and these doctrines which are like very extra biblical maybe they have you know support in the apocrypha but they're they're not actually within say the what is considered to be the canonical books as attested to by the reformation and the early church fathers as well but 
yeah, maybe there's that kind of idea. It's like, oh, you know, critique is kind of based on this idea that it's a misrepresentation over time and like, you know, actually going back to the core away from like the Catholic misrepresentation, we're actually getting back to the core, it actually did involve reincarnation, but so, side point. I want to get you just your take on, say, some of these verses, just a bit of exegesis, because these are some verses I've heard that advance the reincarnation idea, supposedly, right? So here's yeah. one from Ecclesiastes. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. That's Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. Um, For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. Um, Psalms 8, 78, verse 39. So the, in both those instances, there's kind of an identification with nature and kind of the returning to the divine repository of souls, you could say, if it's a, what we're calling God there for a second. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's a number of passages in Job, interestingly enough, like um, more than just the three of you have here, apparently. But um, here's a couple. Uh, Before I go, whence I shall not return, even to the land of darkness and the shadow of death. Um, Job 10 verse 21 if a man die shall he live again all the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come Job 14 verse 14 but the man dieth and wasteth away yea man giveth up the ghost and where is he um, Job 14 verse 10 to 12 so again that kind of appeal to uh, maybe an annihilationism kind of doctrine but also like where does the soul of man go like it's kind of an open-ended yeah. question I don't know, man. What what's your take on say some of these passages and mm. they're trying to advance a certain idea and say, well, maybe this is reincarnation. What's your yeah. take? I would. <laughs> it's funny because I find those some of those verses do the exact opposite. Uh, for example, Psalm seventy eight thirty nine. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passeth away, and cometh not again. does not come again that's typically what reincarnation is about is to come again you know come back as something else yeah. in, in another form it, you know that's kind of self-defeating um if a man die shall he live again I find that's just, it's just kind of rhetorical, same as, as for the, uh, yea, man giveth up the ghost, and where is he? Again, it's kind of rhetorical. If you're reading reincarnation into that, that's, you're not using any uh, biblical sources. Um, and I guarantee you all of these passages with, within their context will hint nothing towards um well, nothing towards reincarnation be it within just the chapter alone or the wider book that they these verses belong to and, and this is again we need to study the bible contextually we need to look at what the author was trying to convey what the author believed what the cultural context was that produced said writings um there is nothing that historically suggests um, that any of these biblical writers or people of their time and their culture would have believed that without 
being considered to be extremely strange. Um, mm. the, the theory of reincarnation doesn't, you know, it tends to originate in the, the Far East, um, kind of India, China area, um, most likely India to begin with. And the interactions between where, where India's faith started to have an influence on uh, the faiths of people in, in the church, be it Jewish or Christian, didn't come till at least, you know, the first century, really. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, there, there's the idea that potentially Thomas um, made it to India and witnessed there. Mm. Uh, well, there was a church the earlier, there yeah. that dates to yeah. that time, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and it seems, mo- I think most scholars uh, think that it was most likely Thomas. But anyway, the timing doesn't really work out. It, I'm just not sold. I'm not convinced. Um, there's nowhere near strong enough argument for it. Hmm. Um, it's interesting, but again, it it doesn't seem to a lot. That the closest you could get is with Gnostic texts. Um, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't suggest the apocrypha teaches anything about this. Um, any of the apocryphal works, be they later or earlier ones like Maccabees. Um, Enoch definitely doesn't. Uh, as much as a lot of new age uh, esque kind of people would like to think there's a lot of things around the book of Enoch and there's a lot of confusion between the book of Enoch and the key or the keys of Enoch I think it's the key anyway they're two very different texts um, the key of Enoch being far later than the book of Enoch mm. um, yeah, Enoch's, thought and not post, some... Enoch's thought to be post-exilic is that right uh potentially during but yeah maybe post um it's definitely second temple period where it was popular amongst jews uh so the time of jesus you know the the intertestamental period um and enoch was yeah the the key of enoch was not something that any of those jews would have had because Mm. it wasn't there Mm. and also it teaches something completely different to what the book of Enoch is, is about um, the book of Enoch is in its ending partially apocalyptic uh, but for the most part it's it's an extrapolation of what happened with um, the fall of the sons of God and the and the later flood and Enoch's interactions with uh the divine um with with god and with the angelic beings yeah because like so my critique i think firstly starts uh of this theory starts with the fact that you know you mentions of afterlife in the bible so first of all you're talking about you know uh sheol or tartaro Mm. or gehenna in terms of like uh, the place where the belonging of souls um and that's kind of like a, a 
a separation of body from soul it's uh it, it's not it's not congruent with an idea of actually what we typically have come to understand about reincarnation they're kind of mutually exclusive ideas um in the way they're referred to pretty consistently throughout the biblical narrative um yeah we're, we're not talking about similar things um mm. and the idea of judgment and resurrection um, resurrection particularly being kind of a more a, a later judeo-christian you know doctrine that developed the theological idea uh resurrection kind of flies right in the face of reincarnation where the ultimate goal of say you know a buddhist or you know a hindu for that matter like um different uh belief systems that endorse reincarnation as a belief the ultimate goal is absolution which is kind of annihilationism of the self not not personhood and personality whereas like a christian worldview involving resurrection as a final destination has a you know a, a very it, it has an idea of the body and soul being reunited and reintegrated so that's integral yeah. you know body is yeah. good body isn't bad body is good that your imago day your uh image of godness <laughs> um is you know bodily and that your personhood is actually part of that imago day that actually you're not just removing that thing that makes you you um but that actually in the idea of resurrection there is a sense of very much of like you're a worshipful being you mm -hmm. and your personality you yourself um that's pretty consistent within you know you can you can look at say the the revelation passages or um, either books of first or second corinthians actually talk quite a bit about resurrection i'm thinking it might be second corinthians 15 talks quite at length about actually the last day and the the, the trumpet resounding um yeah. and even at the time of jesus I, I have a passage here um which was john 11 where are you on the page uh where john 11 mary and martha have just you know had their brother lazarus pass away but the exchange between martha and jesus was i know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day because jesus is asking do you believe that he can come back to life and jesus yeah. said to her i am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die yet shall live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die so that shows that even at the time of jesus this was contemporary this was thought that was kind of known and discussed about this is kind of predating mm. the idea um yeah but even as a idea for kind of the thought being developed within the bible um i think that's pretty consistent that there was a known idea of the day of the lord being the day of judgment and there was no one kind of within hebrew thought that there would be a day of reckoning where men would have to give account for their souls you know before a just god as arbiter um again kind of not congruent what i'm saying kind of it is not congruent with a um view of reincarnation yeah. um yeah. hmm. i mean i have another point there but sorry did you want to say something there jump in no no um yeah no a hmm. good there um so the other point i'd just say so to borrow from a liberation theologian who was studying about in my um last year my grad cert <laughs> um gustavo gutierrez um he talked about a term which i became familiar with called the sacrament of history you know being the sacrament of church history the symbol of church history 
as being uh and some people are just like no there are only two sacraments and everything like you know so they find that idea heretical but i like the appeal of the idea of the symbol of church history being a witness and a testimony to what god is doing throughout the ages i think that's <laughs> what the catholics are trying to popularize there but stick with me don't just get it put off it's like oh catholic doctrine heckles up like <laughs> the catholic sacrament of history actually refutes the idea that theology has been inconsistent if we study deeply enough um the closest is perhaps purgatory which isn't a biblically based idea to reincarnation like but if we actually look there has been a consistent theme even throughout the age of the medieval church about what is orthodoxy there's been like a real contention where actually you follow the church history and you see people battling for you know in some instances you know not exaggeration losing their life and being martyred for what was believed to be the truth of the gospels um and pre-nicene creed so pre you know early fourth century we actually see a really consistent tradition about what actually uh the church believed we actually had for yeah. about three centuries crazy thought a universal unified church theologically you know yeah schisms by and large weren't a thing because you know most heresy was stamped out pretty quickly and there was a real keen sense of actually uh actually this is what the church believes regarding these ideas and just this is important when, because when we're talking about this idea that actually maybe over history things have kind of been bastardized and actually it doesn't seem consistent with even the church history account yeah. of things because there has been this consistent thread which has remained steadfast and faithful and that was a big part of the reformation right actually saying no we've got a whole off track and a lot of extra things that are regarding faith let's go back to the five solas and actually say this is what salvation is this is you know what is christianity um yeah i, I really believe that the scriptures themselves and jesus's beliefs as well as jewish belief never really it's never really reflected belief in reincarnation maybe in fringe sex or cults but certainly not in the orthodox um, branches of the theology hmm. yeah so next we have um speaking of conspiracy theories about jesus there is a uh, a group called the jesus seminar um, now the jesus seminar is a it's a think tank of New Testament scholars. Um, many, if not most, New Testament scholars worldwide consider the Jesus Seminar's view viewpoints to be very radical. Uh, and I'm not talking about just Christian New Testament scholars. Um, now, this think tank, the Jesus Seminar, they claim that most of what is recorded of what Jesus said that he did not actually say it. Uh, for example, the Lord's Prayer. That they have this, they have this grading system, and that they've released a um, version of the New Testament um, where they have a color grading system. And I'll actually just bring that up. If a text is in black 
they believe it is not something that was said. If it is in grey, it probably wasn't said. If it's in pink, it might have been. It probably was. And if it's red, it definitely was. So their red letter Bible is things that they believe Jesus definitely said. You can see here the Lord's Prayer. They are saying the only part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus said was our Father. There are some other things, you know, hallowed be your name. Um, I don't, their, their translation here is impose your imperial rule. Uh, it's a bit weird. But they're saying he definitely said nothing about, you know, in the heavens and enact your will on earth as you have in heaven and rescue us from the evil one. And yeah, I mean, it, that definitely makes the prayer easier to remember. Uh, our Father. Um, I mean, honestly, since adopting the Jesus Seminars approach, I have like my, you know, the, the bedtime prayers that Joanna and I do with our daughter Lottie, like, she loves it, you know? Very short. So much quicker, you know? Like, More like a mantra, I imagine. Just repeating, yeah, our, father, just, our Father, Our Father, Our Father. Our father, boom, put her down. You know, we're good. Like that, that's that's building her up. <laughs> so anyway, what are their, what so are their yeah. cr criteria for you? Do you know kind of like by what criteria they say this is these colors? Um I noticed they mentioned so, in the margins there was like this particular gospel, so corroborated. They also mentioned Q, which is thought to be the kind of source document for all the gospels so that's accepted in scholarly thought just um for those who don't yeah. know q q is a book yeah a repository of of accounts that all the gospels share that's q anyway sorry hmm. yeah well so I'll, I'll just um read a few things that kind of cover that and there is a new testament scholar named uh bill witherington uh he he has said the Jesus Seminar has received a tremendous amount of attention as a result of its controversial procedures and, as, uh, and results and its concerted marketing campaign. The seminar itself is almost exclusively made up of North American scholars, and it is founded and dominated by a few of the more radical Jesus scholars in the US. Many of the major university religion departments, graduate schools, and seminaries are not represented at all. Uh, this is part of Bill Witherington's, um, it, it's in, in, in his book series of the Jesus Quest. Uh, Withering, he, he goes on later to talk about that the goal of the Jesus seminar was to under, undermine the, the traditional views of Jesus uh, and to do so publicly. He points out that now, as to your question, uh, for what is their criteria? Mm -hmm. Bill Witherington has pointed out that the Jesus Seminar approached their work with their conclusions drawn before research, which is, as, if anyone knows anything about basic academic scholarly work, be it in religion, history, 
literature, uh, sciences, anything. You cannot do this. You cannot do this. And obviously we're all a little bit biased. We all have a little bit of bias or a lot, but no one is exempt from that. But good academia, good scholarly work does its best and tries to check that at the gate before investigating and then tries to draw a conclusion based off the evidence that they gather and yeah, the, the information that they gather. Now, when speaking about this very um, matter, Michael Heiser, he points out exactly what I've said, that is not objective scholarship. Mm -hmm. To achieve objective scholarship, one must research and analyze the data, then come to a conclusion. So membership of Jesus Seminar does, it excludes mainstream scholars. The mainstream scholars do not like the way that they do this. Um, ben Witherington, as I was saying, he later says in, in the Jesus Quest, one of the notable characteristics of the Jesus Seminar is that it is not a group sponsored by either of the two major scholarly guilds, the Society of Biblical Literature, SBL, which some of you may have heard of, or the European Society for the Study of the New Testament, SNTS. Instead, it is a group sponsored by the late New Testament scholar, Robert W. Funk, uh, who created his own publishing entity to publish what the seminar concluded. So membership in the Jesus Seminar only includes those who share the conclusions to begin with, uh, which is, it, it is idiosyncratically exclusive of mainstream scholarship and self-publishes its results to avoid peer review. Now, peer review isn't flawless, but it's, in, in a lot of cases, helpful. Um, but the fact that they're doing this to avoid it Robert W. Funk something's funky here um, I'm sorry <laughs> um, it's giving me uh, passion translation vibes a little bit you know like <laughs> now, from what you've told me like you like we were saying you know what how do they come to these conclusions of what jesus said it's it's really random it's just kind of what they feel like mm. um so yeah i, I actually have it written down here what their uh, color coding system is just in case i didn't get it right before so red means jesus said it or something like that pink means he probably said it gray is doubtful black is a total rejection of what um has been recorded um so the way that they do it is they they vote so they have these marbles of the different colors and they say okay did jesus say um who is my mother who is my brother and then they, the members of the Jesus Seminar cast a marble. Um, they cast stones. 
um, and whoever just voted. So it's a democracy. It's not actually a, a balance of stronger arguments or anything. Um, haven't, haven't you mentioned to me as well that, um, so like a popular skeptical uh, biblical scholar, Bart Ehrman, like he's actually skeptical of Jesus seminar, isn't isn't that right? He is. He is yeah. skeptical. Um, so it's been criticised by many many people. Um, N.T. Wright, uh, who says he says, uh, and I quote: "I cannot understand how, if a majority uh, thought a saying authentic or probably authentic, the weighted average turned out to be probably inauthentic." A voting system that produces a result like this ought to be scrapped. Um, spot on there, Tom. Um, and another uh, New Testament scholar um, has summed up the voting process by saying, in practice, this meant an averaged majority vote by people who were not in any reasonable sense authorities at all. Um, So that, that the, the thing about the, the Jesus seminar is they're very, uh, they're very stubborn and they try to make it seem like they speak for the majority of New Testament scholars, which again, just isn't true. Um, and do you think this is problematic in that to some degree in the popular culture, they've actually been successful? In some of those areas? Yes, very, very much so. So right. like um, Ben Witherington was saying, you know, they, they have a lot of marketing campaigns. Um, Michael Heiser pointed out that oftentimes in Easter, you know, during Easter, you'll see a lot of things on newsstands or in, in the supermarket, you know, on, um, you know, magazine covers or, you know, things like who is the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible versus the Jesus of history. These things that are trying to say, like, Jesus never said this, are usually members of the Jesus uh, seminar um, that are trying to put this out there. They have had, like Witherington said, a lot of media attention, um, a lot, uh, because their views are so radical. Um, and media love portraying that because that gets a lot of an attention, you know, it's, it's mm. a, it's a very wild and wacky claim because it's so batshit crazy <laughs> that it's <laughs> not like that it gets people's attention. And mm. then they're like, Oh, these people are scholars. There's a whole group of them and they're, they're, they're working together. They must be, you know, um and and you know they, they don't have the bias of being christian uh which again is just a complete and total it's complete and total nonsense to bring that up when you're talking about new testament scholarship because if you're an atheist you have a certain bias about that as well um but again it's assuming that the good scholars will check their bias yeah it's assuming that like you know none of us have bias you know basically right yeah 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 so yeah yeah so one thing that's important is to look at what they believe you know about jesus they think jesus was illiterate 
that he had uh, that he did not think of himself as divine at all or as any kind of messiah. Uh, and since he was illiterate, he had no interest in Jewish scripture. Now, historically, this can be, this is just wrong because <laughs> many boys were brought up going to Jewish school, even the poor ones, um, not all of them, but a lot of them, uh, going to Jewish school, uh, learning the scriptures. Um, that there's no good reason to think that Jesus didn't do that. Mm. Um, they believe that since he had was literate and had no interest in the scripture, that he had no interest in eschatology, uh, the, the theory of end times. So anything that Jesus said about eschatology, um, no, nah, that's that's not uh, that's not okay by the Jesus seminar, and therefore anything that's written about eschatology uh, by the apostles does not reflect what Jesus taught. Um, so it's it's a steaming pile of garbage, uh, mm. academic-wise. Um, yeah. But so it's been obviously very successful in, uh, you know, convincing popular culture of uh, credibility. Do you have some of those names, friend, of like, you know, if people hear some of these names, oh, that's a Jesus seminar person? um uh, yes I'll, I'll i'll i've got some here because i guess that's like that's good for you know your average listener if they hear a name it's like oh that sounds pretty compelling it's like oh actually that's a jesus seminar person i can yeah swiftly put that to bed yeah yeah so like i said earlier robert w funk who was the founder um, I will save probably what I believe to be the biggest name um, till later. Here are just a few names. Uh, Stephen L. Harris, um, also dead, I believe. John Dominic Crossan, Robert M. Price. So, uh, some may recognize that name. Burton Mack. Um, but probably a name that a lot of people um, will recognize is Marcus Borg. Marcus Borg was an Episcopalian, uh, well, he is uh, an Episcopalian, um, is he alive still? I don't know, uh, an Episcopalian uh, theologian who uh, I I do not call Christian. Um, well, he's been associated with progressive Christianity, hasn't he? Very much so. And even a lot of progressive Christians don't like what he has to say. Um, so he, he's, oh yeah, no, so he is, he is dead. Um, but yeah, there's a, it's yeah so those are some of the names to look out for mm, okay. um, but yeah it, it, mm. it's interesting um the jesus seminar definitely if you ever see anything of that within the world of yeah within the world of of arguments about 
historical criticism or reliability um, and you need to know where to go just look just just refer people to ben witherington's work again he, he he's done some great things about the jesus seminar uh in the jesus quest and elsewhere um just look it up yourself and and show you it, it's very easy to show how little uh scholarship mm. is put into their ideas and into their mm. process um i imagine gary so, gary habermas would be another good authority to refer to on some of these yeah yeah gary habermas yeah yeah he he's i i believe he's done some really good things and i think william lane craig even might have mm. um in passing tackled a few of the things uh put forth by the jesus seminar mm. um he but yeah it, yeah so again if we come across the jesus seminar we know that that is uh that is crazy that fits into our category of crazy conspiracy theories about jesus because their their approach is is not rational it is not uh it is not something that is anything more than theory so the next theory we want to look at i've um, got a couple more here um was a theory that jesus simply didn't exist jesus and christianity were invented by members of secret societies and mystery schools uh in order to unify the roman empire under state religion one state religion so this is similar to some of the ones we've already talked about so far but like straight away there's just a couple of things we can dissect this and put this to bed pretty swiftly right mm. so, well so i mean god oh no I, I was just going to say they already kind of had a state religion that was relatively unified um the one exception being the jewish people were not as compliant but the romans still had worked out a deal uh under the pax romana the time of peace and That's under right. the roman rule so right. they didn't need christianity to do that hmm. yeah so some people have kind of like attributed to the whole role of constantine the great um hmm. that like basically he wanted peace in the empire and you know christianity was one means to achieve that but i don't know like some of the arguments you know and i'm you know i'm open to being convinced otherwise but the arguments yeah. i've heard are pretty spurious anyway like yeah. i i would say the the historical it's hard to maintain this belief that jesus simply didn't exist given the historical accounts so for one and william lane craig has done good work on this the gospels themselves are accepted on good authority as being historical accounts so yeah you know oh what about religious bias no like the gospels themselves are accepted as actually these are historical accounts of a man came jesus and the teaching that he gave um mm. and this is pretty well attested to in scholarship <laughs> ignoring the jesus seminar but that yeah. actually these were historical accounts um even by skeptics even by yeah. atheists and agnostics they'll say yep there was a jesus and there wasn't a, a guy that exists and they come to different conclusions about say moments like the mir the miracles or uh you know the resurrection mm -hmm. but pretty in accordance that it was true uh independent of that you have josephus who was a jewish historian so no motivation to be uh you know convincing us of truths around jesus or tacitus who was a roman historian who both attest to the reality of jesus of nazareth 
both talk about actually how he did miracles. Um, this is independent attestation outside the gospels of the gospel narrative of things, accordance of things, much shorter in their accounts, obviously, but actually definitely attested like the a lot of the core details about the faith. Um, and I'd say moreover, it doesn't fit the timeline because you have almost 400 years of persecution, uh, probably closer to 300 in fact, which are well recorded and the records of the church thinking by various church leaders and correspondents slash written works, they showed a consistent orthodoxy in contest with false doctrine. This is a little bit like what we talked about before with um, the theory around reincarnation being kind of a you know, a hush-hush doctrine within the church and it was actually always there. Like, even though it was a persecuted church, one, that kind of gives you some verification of the validity of these people. They were willing to be martyred for their faith. They were willing to die for the sincerity and the authenticity of doctrine. That needs to be considered. And two is the fact that actually there's like there's lots of records i mean i was just um i was teaching a class even recently and talking about tertullian and he wrote something like two thousand treatises on you know various aspects of theology um quoting all sorts of different scripture and you know making different references like the the early church fathers and you know not even the ones the popular ones that are knowing the the bishops were pretty prolific in their writings and there was a pretty consistent theme about what is orthodoxy. Um, and what's really important about their role is that they are a line of succession back to the apostles. You know, you talk about Polycarp, you talk about um, Ignatius of Antioch or Clement of Rome. These were people who saw the apostles in person and taught people themselves. And those apostles were the people who saw Christ, you know, like that's i think an important thing when we think about the succession um yeah. yeah so i think it's we can put that bit pretty pretty swiftly um I, I have a couple of things there i can say there but did you want to say something to that my friend yeah i mean if anyone wants to without um because going through all of the early you know the patristic period all of the early church fathers and going through tacitus and josephus writings and all those it can be a bit arduous and tough to interpret a lot of them because there are different translations and someone who's put together a lot of things for this is uh, mike lacona he's a new testament historian um he does some great things now um he yeah he, he's done some great things with the works of josephus and tacitus his uh youtube account very easy to find if you just youtube mike lacona um he has a lot of great things about that um oh and i forgot even to mention like eusebius you know early yeah. church historian super yeah. important because he took it upon himself to write the church history leading up to constantine and actually secure it all and actually go to the primary and secondary sources and kind of can you know compile it all together this is an account of yeah. early church history yeah 1700 years but he was a member of the church so he's biased and you, because of that you have to scrap it all together entirely you have to scrap all my arguments so far then basically <laughs> yeah yeah um there's mike lacona 2000 years in the future like clearly yeah. biased <laughs> yeah um but in terms of scholars who 
genuine academic scholars who deny the the existence of Jesus of Nazareth there aren't many I think I said this in the last um in part one probably you know you can count them on one hand last I checked there is one guy who's making a slightly stronger argument uh Robert M Price who I still haven't read his book it's um the case against the case for Christ and he goes through and rebuts every part of Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. Um, but from skimming it, I've, I've not been convinced. Obviously, you know, skimming a book, you don't get everything from it. But um, it, not that history or theology is a democratic process, but it does say something when a heck of a lot of scholars who are definitely worth their weight uh, in anything of value um, laugh that off. Bart Ehrman, uh, for example, when he has been asked about Jesus mythicists, the people who claim Jesus is a myth, he just says, no, nah, I don't have any time for that. Um, I don't address that. And some, uh, I, I saw a video of him talking about, it. he said, I don't even address that in my uh, in my classes because that's not worth my time um, and uh, yeah so that, so that, that'll tell you a little bit about that um, I mean on the Constantine comment like so Constantine the Great only came around early the early fourth century and so the Nicene mm. Council which was so pivotal in establishing you know uh, you know these beliefs around you know the substance of the sun you know was he you know co-eternal with god or was he you know uh of similar substance that whole debate there or yeah. the dating of easter or like the confirmation of what was the canon so important church event um the the nicene council was really only confirming doctrine that was already pre-established um as being yeah. debated not these all, ideas which arise yeah. There's a critique later. And all, all Constantine had to do with the Council of Nicaea was basically calling for it to happen. Yeah. He wasn't. He, he, he had nothing to do with how it went. No. He wasn't controlling. There are a lot of conspiracy theories that go on about Constantine and him orchestrating the Council of Nicaea. Um, like some little puppet show. Um, but also some, something that a lot of people forget is he wasn't the first uh, Christian Roman emperor. Mm. Um, there, there's a few uh, things about that. Uh, someone who's written a bit about that is Bart Ehrman in The Triumph of Christianity. Um, speaks a little bit about that. I think there were one or two before him that were Christian. I think the one before him wasn't the nicest uh, and probably uh, it, it's questionable to say he was a christian emperor but he went around um destroying uh pagan temple temples and uh idols and statues and um you know had had had, had his forces you know you know kill people who were um 
who were sell you know who, who were practicing old roman pay and greco-roman paganism which is again not the christian approach um so to say that the use of christianity within the roman empire was only a force of peace again it hasn't always been done for that and constantine kept on using that for wars as well as justification i mean look at all of augustine's um theories on 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 just wars mm-hmm. yeah just talking about that in class just today actually funnily enough yeah which george bush ended up using later yeah. on so um yeah so coming back to this whole idea of jesus simply didn't exist jesus and christianity were invented by members of secret societies and mystery schools in order to unify Roman Empire into one state religion. I think it's also important to say here that like the Jesus as other gods argument above, the dissimilarities are actually more exclusive than the similarities. Mm. A, that's a important thing to say here. And B, these developments that parallel Christian teaching around Jesus were later developments, not prior yeah. So that's just an important thing. Similar to the arguments for that myth and why in theory and why we can dismiss it. Yeah. It's similar to what we can say here. Um, yeah, but I think this is a good uh, segue. Well, I, I just, I, I love hearing Caleb talk. Um, my friend, what can you tell us about Mormonism and about like its views of Jesus? Okay. To start off um, now, it goes back and forth depending on who the prophet is. For those of you who don't know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints started by Joseph Smith, uh, who received revelation of a, of a third testament and a, and a greater testament of the Bible, which is now known of as the Book of Mormon. Um, he, he was the prophet and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, when he died uh, his friend Brigham Young took over and it's gone ever since when a prophet dies. Uh, I'm not too sure if it's similar to popes where you can revoke it. I don't know if you can. I think it is until you die. Um, but anyway. Uh, so, sorry, this is last, Joseph yeah. Smith and then Brigham. What did you say? His name Brigham was? Young. Brigham, Brigham Young. Young. Joseph Smith, um, Brigham Young. Okay. Brigham Young University is the Mormon University uh, based out of Salt, uh, out of Provo in Utah. Um, and there are other BYU campuses around the world, but some people may have heard of BYU or Brigham Young University. Anyway, they always have a prophet. Now, prophets will always say, you know, what they say may supersede what a previous prophet has said. There is some contention at the moment about this, um, but this is only within the last couple of years that this has started happening. The reason I bring this up is the term Mormon has not always been the nicest term. Uh, they don't call themselves Mormons all the time, but with their previous president, I think it was Thomas Modson, he started this big campaign and some people when they hear about this they might think oh i've seen some of those of i'm a mormon and they were embracing the term mormon because previously they 
Mormons was the outsider's name for them. They always called themselves members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or LDS. Um, but yeah, that there were oh, they had a lot of LSD. famous. <laughs> I think I think Joseph Smith was too. <laughs> uh, and you might have seen some videos of fam- there was a famous basketball player who was uh, I'm a Mormon. But anyway, the current uh, the Killers, the band, um, all members. Oh, really? Yep. Um, um, I don't know that's... if they're all currently now, but hmm. during Mr. Brightside, definitely. Um, um, South Park, not Mormons. Um, we'll we'll link that particular video yeah, of yeah. their tribute to Mormonism um, in the description. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, they have now moved away from the term Mormon again uh, with the current president. It really depends. Now, now this tells you a lot about the state of the church, of the LDS church. A good book that I will always recommend to people is by uh, ex-members, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, uh, The Changing World of Mormonism. Uh, they were scholars for BYU. I believe, um, and they ended up leaving when they uh, became disillusioned with all of these historical changes within the church, be it belief, doctrine, practice, etc. Now, the thing about the LDS church is that they are very, very different from mainstream Christianity in, in a lot of ways, but who they believe Jesus to be is very interesting. In the creation of this world, God the Father, um, they often refer to him as Elohim, which is correct biblically, Um, but they believe Elohim only applies to God the Father typically. Elohim was uh, populating the earth earth with spirit babies uh, with his many wives because they believe he's a physical being and that he is having sex with his wives to impregnate them and then they give birth to spirit babies who so they believe in the pre-existence of the soul which typically most mainstream christians do not uh, the bible does not teach that uh, it teaches that god knitted us together in the womb and that he breathed life into us in our mother's womb right so moment of conception is also the creation of the soul like the yeah yeah okay yeah so with them it's a pre-existence um kind of like scientology um and anyway in the creation of this earth these spirit babies became angels who were to later come down and come into the bodies of people on this earth uh, as they were born or as they were in in the womb. Now, God held a council saying, these people will sin. Uh, How do we save them? How do we bring them salvation so they can be reconciled to me? And God's oldest son lucifer 
Sid, who, who was a very prideful man, Sid, uh, Father, I will, I will be the Messiah for your people. I will bring them to you. I will force them. And uh, I, I, I will, yeah, I will force them to follow you. And if they do not, they are damned. Um, and God did not like that. Elohim, the father did not like that. And he said that, no, I cannot force them. They need to come to me of their own accord. They need to choose. And Jesus offered a way. He said, I will sacrifice myself on their behalf so that I will take their sins. And Jesus being uh, Satan or Lucifer's little brother um, was chosen for this task. Now, out of spite of not being chosen as the Messiah, Lucifer rebelled against God, took a third of the angels with him, uh, and those angels were cursed. They would still go down to earth, but they would become black-skinned or brown-skinned people. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, you, you can easily find uh, documentation that the LDS church has believed this at many points and, and still do kind of teach this. Because of this, for a very, very long time, until 1978, black or, or brown-skinned members of the church could not hold a priesthood, uh, which is what you do to get into going on a mission, um, even before that, just be, being a part of a lot of... Uh, you know, sacred duties in the church. Um, now, what was happening in 1978, long story, but they they were breaking into Southern America. Uh, they were also breaking into the Pacific Islands. Um, and they... By the way, didn't it blow your mind when there was a BLM protest in Salt Lake City, you know, with led by Mormons? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that, that that's a growing movement within the the student body, especially. Um, Get out! I'm, I'm, I'm on. I'm I was on, taking on, the piss. I was. Yeah. Are you serious? <laughs> there, there wasn't a BLM protest, but there there are there's a growing movement of um, racial uh, equality and recognition of the, the church's past yes. treatment of black peoples. By the way, good super important yeah. yeah yeah but just like yeah crazy yeah yeah <laughs> um so anyway they uh, yeah so are they probably oh, sorry they, I'm, I'm sorry i'm gonna like i'm just wanna you know break your brains a little bit here it's like are there current prophets that are kind of like mm, we don't talk about that part or we're kind of gonna denounce that like is that just kind of like we don't talk about that period of history uh they they were now there's this thing called the gospel topics essays which has recently uh been released um and it, it was in 2013 or something they they wrote these essays to help find help their members find official answers to questions they might have when they're, they're looking up you know certain uh, things and they come across an accusation against the church and then they've started talking about um, a whole lot of things that are actually you know very 
uh, problematic in their past. But instead of like, instead of having the effect that they intended of um, trying to bring more openness, a lot of people have been like, oh, so you're saying that you did this and that you're fine with it and that, you know, you're okay with Brigham Young having been a, um, having been an awful, awful racist, murderous man. Uh, Joseph Smith being a womanizing uh, pedophile who married a 14-year-old girl and coerced a lot of other women to leave their husbands and marry him. Anyway, <laughs> um, 1978. Two things are happening. They're breaking yeah. into a lot of uh, black and brown cultures. They wanted to build a temple in Brazil. And the Brazilian government said, get rid of this racist bull crap, or we will not let you build a temple. At the same time, the IRS in the United States, the tax uh, department, they were saying, get rid of this racist bull crap, or we will take away your non-profitable charity status uh religious status mm. so god you know being you know uh you know being subject to the worldly governments in the world he created you know um you know he he he, he obeyed them uh, and he changed his mind <laughs> and he brought um <laughs> he brought revelation to the prophet at the time who i think might have been spencer w kimball that's really convenient. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what what did it see. change? What did it change to? What was the doctrine now? Like, oh, sorry, well, it's that wrong. Black people can now hold the priesthood. Um, but it doesn't deny was, any of the past stuff. Like that, actually, that wasn't true. No, no, not <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, but Spencer W. Kimball, I, I, I can't see if he was the guy at the time. But anyway, interesting, because I will share my screen here really quickly before I move on. Who does this guy look like to you? What's familiar? I can't put my finger on it. Though. When you Google just his name, he does, doesn't he? He looks like, like Yoda. For those of you who are listening, Google Spencer W. Kimball. He looks a lot like Yoda. Um, probably only redeemable thing about the guy. Um, is it the ears? Anyway, I think it's the ears. This is brought up in, um, as Jared mentioned, the creators of South Park. They They did a musical that I think started in 2011 or 12 uh, called the Book of Mormon. It's about two young missionaries who are, you know, young white American guys, one who's a little bit dopey and one who's, you know, very much, you know, proper and has always done things right and believes that he's going to eventually be the next prophet of Mormonism and blah, blah, blah. They uh, posted to a small mission in Uganda uh, where, there is, where there are child soldiers and female circumcision and no members, no people in the town have ever been baptized to the church. And it's a great musical. It, is, it, got, it 
got so many Tony Awards. Incredible musical. Um, Joanna, my wife and I, when we went to London, we saw it. Uh, it came to New Zealand. We saw it twice in New Zealand. It's honestly su such a good musical. I can recommend it to anyone. Mm. Listen to the soundtrack alone and the music is great the choreography is great it's hilarious but anyway they um there's this one song sung by the main one of the main characters elder price who is the one who believes you know he he is a strong woman he's had a crisis of faith so he's decided to just say you know i'm going to be a better mormon and he, the song's called i believe um and in one of the things, you know, saying, I believe that the Lord God created the universe. I believe that he sent his only son to die for my sins. And I believe that ancient Jews built boats and sailed to America. I am a Mormon and a Mormon just believes. Uh, and then later he goes on to say, and I believe uh, that the Lord God sent me here. And I believe that in 1978, God changed his mind about black people. And then the chorus, it goes, black people. Um, <laughs> and it, it, again, it just shows the, the wackiness of their changing views uh, of Jesus. Jesus lives on a planet called Kolob uh, that oversees the earth. Um, this has less been about the theories of, of Jesus, but just more about the LDS movement in, in general and to show that anything you hear about jesus from them probably can't be trusted did you say uh, co colob colob yes k-o-l-o-b it sounds like the whole prophetic, this. it sounds like the whole prophetic movement a collab between like actually what is correct or not basically yeah <laughs> mm. yeah mm. Or maybe it's God the Father that lives on Kolob, but mm. either way, you know, you get your own planet if you do well enough in the Mormon church and you become a God. So God of this universe was once a man. And then there's a, a, an uncountable gods. So, uh, and so, so I suppose the critique there is then people are saying, you know like well there are so many various depictions of jesus how do we know which one's true i think an easy one to put to bed here is to actually say well the lds depiction of jesus is not it is bible. not consistent yeah it's not bible it's not consistent with actually what is you know the historic and traditional view of who jesus is it's it's something quite antithetical therefore we can kind of dismiss it as being authority yeah it's not to say that actually people who are, are members of that church can't become born again believers. And then mm. there seems to be quite a number of them who often, once they do that, they do often journey towards orthodoxy, more orthodox Christian belief. Yeah. That seems to be. And, I, and I, I, I even believe there are some people within the LDS movement who are saved. Yes. Um, because one thing about the LDS movement is it is a, uh, hierarchical movement in terms of uh, the more you go up the chain um, hierarchical isn't the right word but it is hierarchical um, mm. initiative I guess 
as as you go up into different things as you gain different priesthoods different uh accreditations when you go to the temple and get your endowment which is a ceremony a uh, very creepy one uh, look it up uh, i'll link some stuff um you learn more things now there are some i think back in the 90s it was estimated i don't know about current numbers it was estimated that only about 10% of uh, members actually make it to the temple. So most of the teachings aren't necessarily available to all of them or haven't been, um, unless they do their own looking, which they're discouraged from doing. They're, they're encouraged to look within the resources that are recommended for their level. And I've spoken to some members of the LDS church who believed Jesus to be one and the same with the father. They believed him to be a Trinitarian God. My grandmother, my, my late grandmother was, um, she was brought up Catholic. Um, at one point she fell in with uh, the LDS church. Her husband, my, my grandfather was an atheist, so he didn't go along. Um, but uh, because of that, she was married to an atheist. She had no chance of making it in the ranks. But at the time, she believed in the Trinitarian God and that Jesus was the one way to salvation because he paid for the sins that we have made, which have offended God. She, she believed in penal substitution. Uh, she probably couldn't at the time have uh, explained it very well, but believed it. And she was a Christian. Uh, later, she ended up uh, leaving the movement, praise the Lord, um, mm. and came into uh, Christian church movements. Um, and I will see her again one day. Um, but even if she had died when she was a member, I would still say the same. Mm. Yeah, amen to that, man. Yeah. Um, I think it's a beautiful anecdote to share on this as well because it's like it's illustrating that point on some of these theories you know, there is some points of convergence where in terms of the more dogmatic tenets of faith there is enough convergence that we can still mm -hmm. say okay that's nutty but you know me even though you believe that I can still call you a brother and sister in Christ um probably as, an, as our penultimate one, you know, like it's you know, good to probably spend about like five or 10 minutes here uh, talking about Jesus as depicted by Islam. Mm. This is kind of an instance where um, we have dogma being kind of mutually exclusive, right? Yeah. Islam was a later development as a monotheistic faith um, as Allah um, around the sixth century with the prophet Muhammad. Um, it's interesting there's a lot of con convergence uh, in terms of the spiritual authority that, say, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, or the New Testament letters hold, or actually the person of Jesus. Um, Islam reveres and holds Jesus in some high regard. Um, they hold and believe that he was born of a virgin. He, they believe that he was supposed to be revered. They hold that he was one of the successions of major prophets. Um, one of four key messengers 
They hold that he was a miracle worker. They hold that he ascended and will come again. Um, some tenets of Islam even hold that he, he will judge the world. Um, hmm. And it's interesting that even in the Quran, apparently, like Caleb might be able to, you know, credibly assert to this more than I can. Apparently, Jesus is mentioned more in the Quran than Muhammad is, is an interesting point. He is. Yeah. He is um, in the Quran. But that's partially because the Quran was written by Muhammad himself, so he right. wouldn't have written much in the third person. That's I believe point. there are segments where he does, but um, um, yeah, yeah. So like the he, difference... he wasn't as as into himself as Moses was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when Moses writes that um, Moses was the most was was a very humble and the most humble man. Um, <laughs> I mean, he also did write that he struck the rock and, like, you know, did a number of things, like killed a guy. So, criteria. Yeah. I mean, there, 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 there is a lot of uh, academic debate as to whether or not he wrote it in, entirely on his own. He may have had help from Joshua and others. Yes. But yeah. And there might have been a post exilic compilation. Anyway, let, yeah. let, coming back to this, um, differences are. Oh, and it should be said that like a lot of Muslims actually you know, hold their Old Testament being a similar origins. A lot of them actually trace their origins back to is Ishmael. So Genesis 16, 11, 12, uh, yeah. you know, the, Abraham has been made a covenant promise by God, you know, from you, all nations will be blessed. And that lineage, as we know, came from Isaac. But Abraham kind of thought like, no, nah, I'm going to kind of like speed this process up a little bit or specifically Sarai did. It's like, I'm getting too old. I can't have a kid. You know, he is my maiden, you know, like have a child with her and she will be, you know, the, she, the child bearer in my stead, which was kind of like a commonly accepted practice for surrogacy in those days, apparently. Yeah. Um, and so Ishmael was the child of that um, instance um caused some friction between Sarai and uh Hagar um that was the mother I have here which I can mention 16 11 to 12 and the angel of the Lord said to her behold you are pregnant and shall bear a son you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction he shall be a wild donkey of a man his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he should dwell over all his kinsmen and so a lot of Muslims attribute their um presence in kind of the, the covenant line or kind of their their spiritual heritage to this particular um ancestor not yeah. isaac but ishmael um but it's also important here to actually uh there's some key differences that i as i understand right um particularly concerning theories around jesus they believe that jesus was a mortal man and that his original message was lost rolled again one of these four key messages um yeah they probably have um some you know fans in the jesus seminar <laughs> um some allegiance there right um they also believe that he ascended bodily into heaven and that he survived the cross that's an interesting one um they believe that he will come back to defeat the antichrist and come back to live out the rest of his natural lifespan um, which you know, a lot of premillennialists might actually have, like, yep, we agree with that idea too. Um, Muslims also agree, disagree with the idea of the Trinity. They're monotheistic at core, like Jews, and actually say, well, God, Allah is one. Um, yeah, the Tafid principle. 
Yes. Um, certain eschatology as well believes Islam to be the fulfillment of biblical prophecy regarding um, enemies of the faith. Um, Islam itself traces its origins back to Elam, Ishmael and Edom, which I mentioned. Um, Esau secondarily as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, those are some points of similarity, but more points of uh, divergence yeah. than convergence. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting um, looking at the, the ideas of the relation with the Old and even New Testament um, that Islam has. Uh, Muhammad is recorded, and I can't remember which hadith it is, but it is considered to be, um, I can't remember the names they use. There are different uh, ratings of hadiths. And this is the reliable, the most reliable grading uh, accepted by most Muslims. When uh, one thing that was recorded that um, Muhammad said is if you have any issues and, and problems with interpreting the Quran, go to the people of the book. Mm. And by that, he meant Christians or Jews. He said, look at the Bible look at the Old and New Testament and consult that. Um, he seemed to hold the Bible at times in a higher esteem than his writings of the Quran. Um, it's just one of the things that a lot of Muslim apologists will counter with potentially here is that, well, since then, the Bible has lost its uh, genuine you know, reliability um so yeah it, it's um one thing when it comes to islamic views on jesus is there are a lot of stories that are told in the quran and, and hadiths about jesus by muhammad and these stories have striking similarities to the gnostic uh, mm. stories of the infancy gospels mm -hmm. and other of um jesus and can no, i just yeah. can i just no, sorry just to jump uh, back a bit for the audience sake um hadith is that like the oral tradition attributed to no sorry so the hadiths are supplementary texts that are used to help interpret the quran they were written uh by uh aisha um muhammad's most favored wife who, by the way, was six years old when he married her. Uh, but it's okay. He's a good guy because he didn't consummate the marriage till she was nine. Um, so glad you, you know, cleared that up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, piece of crap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> messed up. Um, yeah. Sorry, I, that's good to go. I, I, I welcome the death threats that will come from that. Um, <laughs> so the supplement, the supplementary sources is what you're saying. And so yeah, the, these hadiths were written by Aisha, by some of his friends, uh, and, and a lot of Muslims refer to them in terms of things that Muhammad said about the Quran in terms of like, because with the Quran, it's him writing it, but then sometimes his, his followers would ask him, Hey, when you wrote this, what does Allah mean when he when when he told you to write this? And Muhammad would interpret it. And also, some of the hadiths were just stories about Muhammad and his life and right. the history of Islam. Right. 
Sorry, um, I, I, and I caused you to lose your train of thought. I just no, that, that, that that's cool. No, that's cool. Um, so anyway, a lot of the Islamic stories of Jesus are very similar or almost identical to the stories found in the Gnostic texts. Mm. Where does this come from? So, as Jared said, the the movement is is quite a lot older than Christianity. It's about six centuries older. Um, in fact, it is six centuries older, but newer, sorry. Uh, it came six centuries after Christianity was uh, birthed. In the province that Muhammad was in, which is now modern-day Arabic, kind of Saudi Arabia-ish area, uh, parts of Saudi Arabia, definitely, um, there was a lot of Arabic paganism and that was what Muhammad was brought up around. And uh, his, his message of tafid, uh, of, of that, that is the Islamic principle of monotheism, that Allah is one God and one alone. Uh, that, that was very revolutionary for a lot of people because there were hundreds of gods that, uh, in, in their pantheon. Um, and with a lot of gods came a lot of mysticism and um, esoteric, well, not esoteric, but a lot of, uh, yeah, spiritualism and, and the like. Now, with that came, uh, with that came a lot of embracing of things like uh, paganism. Uh, sorry, a, a lot of things like Gnostic views. The Gnostic texts, which were found in Nag Hammadi in Egypt, it's not surprising that they would have made it a little bit up the Arabic peninsula towards, um, you know, and Arabic land, sorry, up, up towards Saudi Arabia. So a lot of what Muhammad would have uh, consulted for stories about Jesus would have been people who were Gnostics or who were influenced mm. by Gnostics. Mm. So he doesn't have access to the primary source texts. Secondary mm, sources. Yeah, he, he doesn't have access to the primary source, which is the, the synoptic gospels and the gospel of John. And he, he has no right to interpret who Jesus was and is correctly. Because I suppose like even then, even then, the bible isn't as we know it it's not like a book of 66 it's more like the the separate bo books which are accepted as canon right like mm. i mean i guess the latin yeah. vulgate was a thing but there still would have been a lot of instances where the bible existed as disparate texts more or less right yeah yeah mm. yeah and i think um yeah and and, and other other theories is like you mentioned they don't uh they don't teach that in fact they teach that jesus did not die on the cross mm. there are different approaches to that the main one is the swoon theory which we covered in part one yes. there's there, there are other theories that he you know that god gave him a certain amount of strength uh to deal with it um whereas your and description he, of he, and he, he pretended I mean, your description um, of the medical procedure and crucifixion kind of quickly yeah. defeats that, right? Yeah, well, that's with the swoon theory. The other theory is that um, God 
put a certain amount of strength in Jesus to not actually be hurt or be hurt as much. So then he pretended to be hurt and pretended to die. Then there's the other theory of, I think it's Trent, not, I can't remember the, the name of the theory, but basically when Jesus wasn't carrying the cross briefly, uh, he actually swapped uh, over. Old switcheroo. Yeah, swapped over with, what's his name? Uh, was it one Simon of Cyrene? Or... Simon, yeah, Simon, yeah, Simon yeah. of Cyrene, so that Jesus swapped. Oh, and then he did he Mary, met, Mary Magdalene. He with, went off and, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. so he swapped with Simon of Cyrene. Uh, because Allah bestowed upon him the messianic power to do so. So it was Simon of Cyrene that was crucified and killed. Poor guy. Um, because Jesus put his face onto Simon's um, what you know, you'd think like... he'd be saying, like, hang on, like, why are you guys putting, you know, why are you nailing me to this thing? Um, I was just helping the dude. Yeah. Who would have who would have thought, like poor guy, that a whole religion would have been started on the back, back of this crucifixion, right? Cyrenians, yeah. you know, like <laughs> yeah. That's so not... again, yeah, there there are some different theories about Jesus within Islam that are just um and and one thing that a lot of Christians need to be prepared for mm. when speaking to Muslims about the deity of Christ. One thing they will almost always, because they've been taught to do this, uh, one thing they will almost always say in these arguments is, show me in the Gospels, where did Jesus say, I am God, worship me? They're not looking for you to say, you know, when Jesus claimed I am or to be son of man or um, to forgive sins or, or many of the other things that, signal jesus deity they want the exact words i am god worship me quick answer is turn it around because same logic where did he say i am not god do not worship me in those exact words um who has some great resources uh for these kind of things is david wood of at 17 apologetics we'll link him below um, but yeah uh, that that's uh, <laughs> that that that's me for uh, for Islamic views on Jesus, which I, I think my friend brings us to kind of closing out. We we could talk a little bit about actually has Jesus as depicted by other religions generally, um, but maybe that's a subject for another podcast some point in the future. Mm. Um, I, I will say here, like many religions affirm like Jesus was righteous, wise, he was a miracle worker of spiritual significance, and he had followers and died, but differ on the manner of his divinity, the matter of his divinity for their own inherent reasons. It's like, oh, we can't agree with that. That's what we can't abide for these various reasons. Um, some even accept his divinity. Um, most don't. But the problem we run in all, through in all these instances is uh, truth by nature is mutually exclusive. And that dogma, dogmatic uh, tenets of belief, um, cancel each other out. Um, you know, you look to John 14, verse 6, which Caleb mentioned before, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's, there's not a lot of room for wriggle room for reinterpretation there. And say, so, well, Jesus is going to be with this, you know, like, 
pretty exclusive or you know john chapter one verse one to five in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was with god in the beginning through him uh all things were made without him nothing that has been made was made like and the revelation of that that uh word was made flesh and that is jesus like again pretty categorically uh exclusive theological claims about the nature of jesus which doesn't give a lot of room for it could also mean this or it could also mean that um but we would probably advocate christine was here she would do the same thing i think a lot of this comes back to when you hear these different views a might winger approach would be rather than knowing the different beliefs which has credibility don't get me wrong the best defense is really know your scriptures like really get into your word and know what the word says about these different things because oh, i feel like it's not by accidents that you know holy spirit inspired canon has a lot of stuff that actually refutes these ideas inherently and there's enough in there that you can actually say like you know this doesn't work yeah like mm. uh would you say anything further on that point friend on just yeah just to just to reiterate that just to reiterate that um point is you know an, an, an analogy sorry an analogy that has been offered for this very practice of know your scripture beyond others is people who uh work to spot counterfeit money they don't go out and learn what every counterfeit bill will have wrong with them what they do instead is they look at every legitimate accepted form of the dollar bills that are available and they learn the intricacies and details of those and then any counterfeit that comes across they can say okay this is different this is wrong this is wrong so again reiterating I, I feel I just feel the need even though Jared has explained it perfectly it's just it, it, it's worth reiterating because Absolutely. it is a worthy yeah it is a worthy um endeavor mm. yeah no so solid great analogy too man love that is that a Caleb Zoetic original no no, no <laughs> I can't remember where I, I think it was on the cultish podcast uh, where they were talking about the very same principle mm-hmm. yeah mm. That about wraps us up for Crazy Theories Part 2. Thanks so much for listening. Coming up, we have an interview with the former CEO of the Warehouse Group and Kerry Baptist College Professor in Apologetics, Mark Powell. A two-part testimony with our new co-host, Tony G. And a two-part discussion with our in-house expert on sex before, during, and after marriage, done biblically. Christine Walton. We also look to have Caleb join us again for a fun one, Movies That Messed Us Up Part 2, and the trial of our first live Christian pop commentary cast. Stay tuned for more details to come.